Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Hello, good people. Hello, Jonathan. Well, long time no chat there, Slobby. Definitely a long time. It's been a minute. And for this this beautiful audience of ours, it's been a week. It's been a week for them. It has. Now, what I want to know is, audience, what have you been up to this week? I want you to pause. I want you to pause the episode. I want you to go click the questions and let us know what you've been up to this week. That's what I want to know. I don't care about Slav anymore. I care about you. No. I've shared all the highlights I could. And I'm M- bored of them. My week has pla- All my weeks have plateaued. Same, though. Who was it? I think it was uh, the Trader Joe's worker was like, hey, how are you? And I was like, I don't even know what day it is. And they go, oh, okay. And they were like, well, I think you deserve happiness anyway. And I was like, I don't know if I do. <laughs> yeah. I usually... Then- Oh no. Go ahead. Go I, ahead. I was gonna say, um and then <laughs> she they're they're like, Well, I believe everyone deserves happiness and I was like, Nah, I don't think so. I don't think everybody deserves happiness. And no. she's like at work so she can't argue with me about it. <laughs> no. Like for example, stupid people. They don't deserve happiness. Does Kim Jong un or um Putin Deserve happiness? I'm willing to bet if you prodded this young person or old person, I don't know. Uh, middle-aged woman. If you prodded, prodded this middle-aged woman, she would say that if only Putin got enough love from his mom, which I'm reading a book about Putin, and he was protected and very loved by his parents because apparently his older brother died. We haven't gotten that far. So Putin was loved by his parents. He was even protected by the by his parents from a lot of the like trials and tribulations. I know that sounds dramatic, but it was the Soviet Union. Uh, a lot of the trouble that kids would face in kindergarten in the fifties, the system was just so effed. I'm not but, surprised. But hey, Putin was loved by his parents. But he never so. got into art school. That's why he became a. <laughs> yeah. It's a pattern. There's a pattern there. He failed the Moscow Art School. Uh, he got kicked out of the fair. It's even worse. They didn't like his massive hog that he brought? I assume you're talking about the animals that he raised. We'll go with that. Yeah. Well, it's a PG. It's a PG podcast. We'll go with yeah. that. No, I, he actually grew up in the suburbs, I think. I think his, um, hold up. his grandpa. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Yeah. They have suburbs in Russia? An equivalent of, yeah. I thought Russia was this frozen landscape that sometimes thaws to like negative 20 that people uh, just grow Siberia. potatoes. Yeah, Siberia is. Grow potatoes um, and make vodka and hope that you have almost as much suffering as the person next to you. Yes. Um, I might be getting some of my f- facts out of order, but his grandpa 
was a chef. He like ran like a, a big restaurant in Moscow early on before the revolution. And then after the revolution, banks are closed. Moscow's turned into a hellscape. So he takes his family out into kind of past the burbs and to the boonies. And that's where Putin's dad is born. And that's where I think there's another move. But that's as far as I got. There there was the prelude, the prologue. What's the name of the book? Putin by Philip Short. Mm. Highly recommend it. I read some stuff by Short. He's a really good writer. Good historian. Makes it interesting. When did the revolution happen? 87? You mean the original one in the early uh, teens, oh, no, was... mid-teens, like 17, 1917? Wait, how old is Putin? He's like in his 50s. No, 70s. He's in his 70s. Yeah, yeah. So the... His grandpa left oh, grandpa. after I the revolution. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah. I was thinking so like, he man, was born I didn't in know the 50s. A... Okay, all right, all right, all right. I thought... I thought, whatever. I got egg on my face. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. For those... Um, your dog is crazy right now. My dog is crazy. For those not aware, there's a phrase that people used to use called, you got egg on your face. And correct me if I'm wrong, Slava, but it's it's basically like your ignorance is showing. Like, oh, you, you made a mistake. You got something hanging there. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I think that's right. Anyway, enough... Uh, well... Not enough about dystopian, not dystopian. It's a day, whatever the day is. It's the it's a day. Enough about Vlad. More about Dick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's discuss Dick. I'll send you some photos. Now, is it more? What's the fancy word for uh, horses? Equine, equal, equestrian, equestrian. Yes, yes. Wow. It's a day. It's a day. Equine. Right, what does just, equine even mean? Uh, that's not even I, a word. It's whatever. It doesn't matter. Let's dive into The Variable Man by Philip K. Dick. That is the dick that I was referring to. How dare you think otherwise? This is a Good PG episode. Is there a short name for Philip besides, like, Phil? Like, Richard is Dick? No, I think not. Or Richard could be William. Richard could be William? Yeah, it wasn't a... Am I, am I mixing names up? I think William is Bill or Billy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nope. Wow. It's just, we're not batting 100 right now. We're not, we're, 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 we are batting 100. <laughs> because. Are you dyslexic? Is, is it no. zero, zero, 001? No, batting 1,000 is when you're like, you know. Oh, a, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And most professionals bat uh. at like 300. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the 17-minute uh, podcast. Where, uh, you don't know how to count. We're eight minutes in. With the intro and outro. and The intro and outro of 40 <laughs> seconds. You jag off. Oh, uh, goodness. Well, you know what? All right. So we read The Variable Man by Philip K. Dick. And I will, I think it's my turn to sell it. If maybe it's not, I don't know. This is a book about the possible future. What's it? 2136, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And it's written in a third person limited point of view. And the narrative follows a couple scientists 
Well, I guess the one guy's a scientist and the other guy's uh, works for the government, right? Like he's like a war commissioner or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, somebody. Anyway, those are our two main figures that we go back and forth between. And then suddenly there's a variable man because science reasons, they pulled him from the past and now he lives in their present, which is 2136. But they pulled him from 200 years in the past. Yeah, 1913. So all hell breaks loose, and they're in the middle of a war trying to resolve the cosmic-level war that they're in with this weapon called Icarus. And the... How am I going to summarize this? Basically, Icarus is going to be shot off into the... I want to say protozoa, but that's not right. Where is it? It's somewhere just outside of Earth, right? It's Alpha Major... Yeah, Alpha. it's well just outside of Earth. I mean, in like space terms, it's a couple of million yeah. light years away. But K-9 they are preventing something. Earth from expanding space travel beyond you know beyond th- what they control. Yeah, and they are called cent- the Centurion system. Centurion system. That's what it was. You know, yeah. I actually took an astronomy class in college, and I, I it's been a while, I guess. Anyway, so they're they're trying to get away from the Centurion system. So they're going to fire this Icarus at the Centurion system to explode because someone in the past ended up creating this style of, well, they created this thing and the perception is that it's a weapon. So it was trying to be the equivalent of faster than light travel. Uh, Sorry. Yep. Faster than light. FTL. Yeah. 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 Well, well, it's like, it was like seven times faster than light travel or something like that. It was, it was exponentially faster than light. But what happened was the mass that they, uh, or the object that they fired into space, as it was elongating, the mass became exponentially weighted. And so as it was getting longer, so it was going faster, and then the object itself was getting longer. As it was getting longer, it was growing in mass and then eventually warped outside of physical reality. And then what they did is they triggered it to come back into reality but it couldn't because it weighed so much. And what it ended up doing is creating a bomb. So the whole premise of the book is to send off this weapon to the, what is it, Alpha Centauri? What'd you say? Centurion system. Centurion system. Where they're going to fire Icarus to the Centurion system to do the same thing, explode. Yep. Problem is, it's not fully wired yet, and they got five days to do it. But thankfully, they have this variable man. So (laughs) what happens? They force him to work. Well, no, go for it. Just one second. So they bring him into the future. The, their computer systems, which kind of help them guide their war efforts, are now showing that they might lose the war. And the commissioner thinks it's because of the variable man, sends a death squad, but a scientist named Zhekov or Chechekov, a Polish guy, Saves saves the guy because he realizes this guy is good with fixing things because he was a he was a traveling mechanic, travel handyman back in 1913, and because he is able to look at these things kind of detached and his mind works in a completely different way, scientist thinks he can fix this machine and puts him to work secretly while the commissioner is out there hunting hunting the variable man whose name is Thomas Cole. Thomas Cole. Yep. Right. So. Thomas ends up doing this micro-wiring, which is what they call it, where you need this magnifying glass that you wear on your head that exponentially grow magnifies things by, I think, was it a thousand-fold? 
Something like that, yeah. Something crazy. To do the micro-wiring, Thomas does it. They get raided by the antagonist, whose name is... Uh, Reinhardt, I believe. Reinhardt. Yes, thank you. Reinhardt comes in, trying to kill the variable man, ends up perceivably succeeding. They fire off the Icarus to the Centauri system. Yeah, and the Centauri system is actually has a name. It's called Proxima Centauri. Centauri, Centauri, I guess. Sorry, I keep interrupting, but... No, you're good. So they fire it off, and the war begins. The problem is that the prediction box, the statistical prediction box that Reinhardt was using after he killed the variable man showed that they lost the war. So he couldn't take back the fact that he killed the man, and he tried to stop Icarus so he could prevent the war, but it had already been launched. So the war begins... The war gets lost in, like, two days because this was their Hail Mary and it failed. And it ended up going to Alpha Centauri, Proxima, whatever, and coming back out and not exploding. But what happens is Chekhov comes back and says, we didn't lose the... the, We we lost the war, but we got something even better. And, And they're all like, well, what? And he says, well, the variable man, Thomas Cole, ended up wiring the Icarus to function correctly. So the original guy who made it ended up not being able to, to finish his formula for, for conversational purposes, which is why it exploded when it came back. But what happened was Thomas Cole ended up wiring it so that you could come back into space, which made them lose the war, but opened up the entire cosmos to them. Right. Because now they can travel exponentially faster than light, past Alpha Centauri, Proxima, whatever it's called, and go explore everywhere. The problem is, Reinhardt found out that Cole was not dead, and they're nursing him back to health because Chekhov originally promised him to send him back to his time with some treasure because of what he did, and they're nursing him back to health. So they ended up arresting Reinhardt and charging him for his attempted crimes, and that is the story. Now, it's worth a read. It's it's good. The character it's interesting. It's science fiction. It's also speculative fiction, which Slava really likes, which is fun. It's heaps better than The City in the City. I'm not sorry about that. Don't at me in the comments. But here's the thing. And this is where I have and it's a short story, so I get it. But there's a ton of exposition in this story. And for those who are unfamiliar, Exposition is the explanation of what's going on. It's the background information on everything. And it just keeps going and going and going about like and and, and spoon feeding you, basically. Which, there comes a time and a place where that needs to happen. And for science fiction, I, I understand why it needs to take place. But there was no real handoff with the audience as the reader to let me start making assumptions because it's a short story. Exposition is fine. We get it a lot in anime where it's like, why did you do that? And then the person responds, well, you know as well as I do that it takes 700 degrees Fahrenheit to do this thing to make the chemical reaction. We learned this in freshman year. And it's like, oh, right. Well, what's that going to do? What are you, dumb? Do you forget that it means that it's going to do blah, 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 blah? And they literally just tell you everything up front, which I don't love. I don't love, but I but I understand. 
Anyway, Slava, what did you think about the book? Similar to what you're saying, it started really slow for me. And I was like, all right, I'm not liking it, but I'm not hating it either. At no point did I hate the book at all or the short story, but it it did start out really slow for me. I want to say, since in, in audible form, about half an hour to 45 minutes into it, I started getting into it and I, I enjoyed it. I don't really have an opinion on the exposition Specifically here in this book, one way or the other, it was what it was. I liked that there was some level of suspense after Reinhardt figured out that Sherikov, I think, not I forgot what I really called him. I call everybody by different names, and none of them, none of those names are what it's given to them. But I'm looking up at the chapter summary here. Sherikov, after he saves him on the mountainside, for me there was a, a decent level of suspense, and I say decent because I think it could have been better, but this was one of Philip K. Dick's early works. It's a short story. It's meant for a pulp magazine, so it probably had constraints put on it, right? That's Even fair. if they were put on were put there by the author. Tell us what a pulp va- uh, magazine is. A pulp magazine was it's something from like the 30s, 40s and 50s. Yeah, I, I forget exactly where it originated, but it's a magazine that has stories in it, and it's called pulp because of the paper it was made on. It's kind of like a collection of science fiction stories, horror stories, speculative fiction stories before it was even called that. They were just magazines that people would write, write into, submit stories, and maybe dis- distribute it amongst the, the craze that was science fiction in America, which I might be a decade off, but I think started in the 40s. That only started in the 40s? The craze, I think, started in the 40s. The, the fact that science fiction was around before. That's fair. That's fair. But I, I, uh... like I said, I might be off by a decade. That's fair, um, because things require a tipping point. The, the second that they hit the main, uh, the, the second that they hit the society, doesn't mean that it's going to be that it's going to take off. So that's yeah, that's fair. Another thing that I would have liked to have seen more for, which to me, like when I'm left hungry for elements about the world, I would say that the book's good because it it, it has you asking questions, it has you interested enough to care. I wanted to know more about the variable man. I think that they should have given us a little more. Well, they, Dick, I think Dick should have given us a little more point of view of Thomas Cole and how he's feeling about the situation he's in. Like, it's got to be really jarring to be pulled 200 years into the future and go, what the hell is going on? We get that he's going through a, a thing because Dick does give us that, but we don't we don't get a lot of internal dialogue for it's any not of enough, the characters. Though, right? It, yeah. You're right. We get a little bit, but I, I wanted more. I want to know... and. I think this comes from a lot of the books that I like to read, which are often third person. It's not omniscient, but it's to me it's like third person limited plus. And I say that because you get multiple people's point of view and a little bit of their internal dialogue. Even if you see it contradicting each other from chapter to chapter where it's like Lyndon is feeling this way and then it swaps over to Yaren and it's like, well, Yaren is feeling differently, but it's contradictory to how Lyndon felt, and so you don't know which thing that they're perceiving is true. So I call it plus, even though most people would probably simply categorize it as third-person limited regardless. Anyway. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. And just jumping back a few thoughts, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, science fiction gained popularity in the 50s. But I know as early as the 30s, there was, you know, monster movies and kind of um, alien movies that were coming out and Pulp Fiction, not the movie, but fiction in Pulp magazines. 
gained popularity in the 40s. So just like you said, the tipping point where it really took off was the 50s. And this is an interesting side quest, even diners. You know why diners are shaped the way they are? Uh, For two reasons. One of them, because there was dining carts on trains. And before planes took off in America, no pun intended again, people traveled by train and there were dining cars that had a kitchen and a bar and a few tables on the side or booths on the side. So when planes took off, Americana kind of, the thing that is Americana, the feel of the car, the look of the car was taken to the local uh, corner of Main Street and Elm or whatever, right? And some of them were literally train cars, and a lot of them were shaped and built. The architecture was meant to resemble a train car. And as we enter the 50s and 60s, specifically early 60s, we see many of these diners now taking on like a saucer look. So at least on the outside. That's why they they got saucery? Yep. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, I I saw a documentary on it about five days ago. And by documentary, it was an episode on American weird weird stuff in America, which was like 30 minutes. But it was fascinating. Yes, interesting. It was fascinating because you see into the 70s and 80s, like the sci-fi aspect of it is going away. Now it's becoming more retro, more a futuristic kind of a, I don't want to say dystopian because they're not thinking about that at all. But it's, it's starting to look more comic book, right? That's how I would describe it. And then fast forward into the you know, 90s and the 2000s, it's, nobody's thinking about anything anymore. Um, there's just a layout for a diner, and the diner serves the same food that it served 50, 60, 70 years ago. But when they first came off, literally, the train and were put on an American street, they saw, I think, two or three iterations of how, how they went through different phases of architecture and deco and all that stuff. So, side quest over. No, 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 let's finish the side quest. So, do you have a good diner in town? I do. I'm honestly a little jealous because I was talking with my girlfriend about this because we were both like, man, it'd be kind of nice to just go. She loves breakfast food. And I was like, oh, we can go to a diner. And she's like, where? What are we like? We don't. There's no greasy spoon around here. Mm. There's things that are like bougie breakfast. Right. But that's not a diner. A diner is a corner. Just like you said, a corner shop. I think I always think about Nighthawk, the diner painting. Yeah. By yep. Edward Hopper. I love Edward Hopper. It's just my like, favorite American painter. Like really? if I had a t- top three, he would be on top three. Nice. Yeah, I love him because it's just like it's on a corner, big windows. There's a counter, like a diner. Like who yeah. doesn't have a nice diner experience from when you were a kid, where you know a grandfather or a dad or somebody took you to die? Like it's a, it's that's just like you said, it's classic Americana. Yeah, and this diner, it's Greek owned, and it has all the typical American staples, but it has a little. Uh, a Latin st- section. I don't know what to call it. Uh, but we have a, a large Latin. Yeah. We have a large Mexican population just on the other side of um, the other side of literally the, the highway. Yeah. The other side <laughs> of the tracks. A little side of the tracks. So, <laughs> but this, it's, it's really not. But anyway, on the other side of the highway, we have a, a lot of a lot of Mexican folks that live there. A lot of Mexican restaurants. It's two or three of them are actually good. And... I say that, and I say it unapologetically, because after you've eaten Mexican food made by Mexicans at home. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, lived in South LA for a few weeks and 
ate really good Mexican and then lived in the middle of the most Mexican neighborhood in Chicago, like in the middle of it, and you had Mexican food and Latin food and Cuban food and Peruvian food, like in your face when all it's the time. Done right, it was good. It's so good. But anyway, this diner has like a Mexican portion or a Latin portion to the to the menu. They have this Guatemalan breakfast, which is eggs, steak and eggs. It's steak and eggs, but it also has beans and uh, plantains and corn tortillas. And I always order a chili terriado, which is just a grilled grilled uh, jalapeno onions. And you want to die. It's so good, man. It's so simple. I flip it's, and love plantains. Oh, my gosh. So cotton candy is my favorite, my favorite thing almost in the world. And then second to that is fried sweet plantains. Is so yep. good. Mm-hmm. Creme brulee is up there also somewhere. Yeah, but, I love creme brulee. Oh, but, oh, we got creme brulee. You know what? This is irrelevant. It wasn't. They didn't glass the top correctly, so you, like that I'd sucks. smack it, and then it didn't break. Mm. They didn't put it. I don't think they put enough down, and then and you know fired it. But anyway, we got away from the variable man because of diners. But this is side quest, and that's that's you know sci-fi side quest. It's all connected. So yep. let's bring it back to Thomas Cole. Reinhardt and Chekhov. Yeah, I like Chekhov. Shek, Shek, hold on, hold on. Before we continue, let's just figure out this poor bastard's name right. Sherikov. Sherikov. I really like Sherikov as a character. He is not your typical nerdy, weak scientist in a lab coat that is stuck between you know, what he loves to do and the people who are ordering him to do the stuff that he finds objectionable, but he still feels committed to the cause or whatever. And outside of that, he's just a interesting character, I think. The fact that he has his own guards, he's smart enough to figure out, you know, Cole's abilities just based on limited information that Reinhardt gives him. And he goes and saves Cole. He figures out that, hey, this guy, this variable could be good for us. And turns out to be right. And he goes and just saves him. And then kicks Reinhardt's ass in a little mini war. <laughs> Turn every asset into a liability, as Dal and Arcolin says. There you go. So, who do you think? Who do you think uh, stands out to you as a? I mean, there's five characters here, but out of the five characters that we get to know, uh, who do you like the best? I. That's a fair question. I. I do like Chekhov. Would how did you say his name? Sherikov. Sherikov. I do like Sherikov. But I think I'm too focused on Thomas Cole. I just want to know more about his story. And I don't get that. So um, so be it. Thomas Cole. I want to know how the man from the past feels about the future. He gets maybe 12 lines like of dialogue. He doesn't get anything. And it's funny because he's this jack-of-all-traits kind of guy, right? And if I was to ask questions about Cole, I would want to know not necessarily what what he thinks or doesn't think about being transported to 2136. I mean, it'd be interesting, but my first question would be is how did he get to be this traveling handyman? What happened? Is that something he chose or is that? Well, that's during the great depression, right? 1913. Is that the great depression is in the thirties though? No, no, no. The first depression started in 1908. Pretty sure. The American depression. The Great Depression, 1931 to 1933. What am I thinking about? 1929. How many depressions are there? Take your pick. All right, Google. 
I thought. All right. Depression of the 1910s. The panic of 1910 to 1911 was a minor economic depression that followed the enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which regulates the competition among enterprises trying to avoid monopolies and, generally speaking, a failure of the market itself. So it wasn't a depression. It was a panic, Jonathan. The depression comes after the panic. Very much panic, not enough disco. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, so there's nothing depressing in the economic sense in the 1910s. I mean, maybe in Nebraska, that's where coal is from. Something's going on. In Nebraska, it's the Midwest, a lot of farm folks, a lot of middle class or lower middle class folks. So I guess it makes sense that he's a traveling handyman. But still, if I want like you want to know his story from a different aspect. I want to kind of know his story, like what the hell happened to get you to ride around on your horse-drawn buggy fixing people's refrigerators for meals. Because he doesn't even, it's not like it's a business. It's This is like his life. Like, right. I mean, well, your business could be your life too because you've got to pay bills Minus. and eat. you got to pay bills and you got to eat. But I'm sure even in the 1900s, the guy who owned the local, you know, hardware store got to sleep in a bed. So Cole is a handyman, but he's a traveling handyman. Right. And he, he works for food and a little bit of money, pocket money, he says. So this is not right. like yeah, it's, a it's, venture that he's created for himself or his family or for whatever. It's not a venture. This is just like, I'm going to travel, I'm going to get some money, and I'm going to eat, and I'm going to fix your trinkets. The The pocket money was an interesting call out in the text because, it just like you said, it means he doesn't work for a salary. He's just a wandering nomad, mm-hmm. a step above homeless. Um, exactly, exactly. And, and and I only say that because he, well, he doesn't have a home, but he gets paid. He does work. So he's um, a wandering vagrant, I guess. Yeah. But if we're going to believe everything we read on the internet, I found, um, <laughs> I found a blog. This is the double-edged sword of the internet. It opens up you to other ideas and people who will never get a platform but have a lot of interesting things to say, and some of the stuff they say is very on point. And you also get, you know, basement-dwelling mouth breeders who just spew nonsense that, you know, entered their brain when they were defecating this morning. You and I are and both in basements right now. That's the show, folks. Touche. Touche. And we're both putting this on the Internet. So I, uh-huh. I, I am fully aware of the irony of Look, the statement. The, the, the audience was also thinking, like, what about these two schmucks? Fair enough. All right, so there's this blog called philipkdickreview.wordpress.com. And I like you can't find anything on this book that's like outside of like 200 words on Wikipedia. Yeah, it it, it is pretty lesser uh yeah. covered. Like the the news coverage on this book apparently yeah. not Dick's favorite work for most people. Right. So a lot of Dick's stuff critiques culture or tries to engage with the philosophy of, of his time, speculative fiction. It You know, we already discussed this. Uh, so this dude says that Dick is critiquing the cultural of waste that he saw around him in the early 50s. Thomas Cole looks back to a time even before Dick's when the jack-of-all-trades skilled workers had control over the technologies in use. By the early 22nd century, this autonomy of humanity over machine had ended. He shows that it was not only a question of autonomy, 
but also a one of waste. Think back to the Kipple in uh, do Android Android's Dream of, Dream of Sheep. Electric Sheep. We see that the entire Terra Earth Terra war effort is based on a principle of almost instant planned obsolescence. Weapon systems are not even built. They're only planned and tested. Immediately planning for the next generation begins. And then I'm going to stop reading because it doesn't, the rest of it doesn't connect to it in my point. But even the, <laughs> the, even the machines that predict stuff, what, what could happen? You feed information to them. So they're not like these omniscient machines. You have to enter data, and they say, well, based on the data you gave us, this is what could happen in this war. And six to seven odds are, like, great to them. And they'll go and fight on that because they want the ability to travel past this uh, Centurion system. So that, those are the words I chose to say. But that's, that doesn't answer your question about what Cole is thinking in the future as he's being coerced into fixing machine this machine. Right. I want to detour here because I think that one of the things about Dick's writing is that he gives the audience a lot of themes to play with in their discussions. So some of the themes that we see in this work and piece are just, you brought this up a moment ago, technological determinism, where the impact of advanced technology on society and the questions that it uh, poses to the extent of how technology shapes human lives and interaction. Another theme that we see is free will versus determinism. That's like Mm -hmm. part of the key conflict that... Reinhardt introduces where he's like, well, I put the numbers in and then the variable man happens and the variable man just does whatever he's going to do because of his free will, which changes the determinism that Reinhardt believes in. That tracks with Philip K. Dick's, I guess, philosophy and why he wrote speculative fiction because he deals with free will and determinism and the human condition, metaphysics in the sense of reality, what is real, and epistemology, how do you know what you know? that will kind of determine how you go about finding out things or knowing things or understanding how to obtain knowledge, yada, yada, yada. We, you know, no need to revisit that. But what you just said tracks to Philip K. Dick's uh, worldview. Yeah. What do you think about people who live with a worldview of determinism versus people who live with a worldview of free will? And then how do we... So that's the first question. And then how do we, well, I guess what's the judgment on which one is better or is there a third one that's better um, that we're unaware of that that I that isn't necessarily listed in the story? Yeah, I think the popular version of free will that you, the definition you would get from the man on the street is an illusion. I think humanity does have free will, but it is bound by your human nature. So you will do freely what you are bound by. And if we're going to bring in the Christian worldview, whatever drives you, whatever factors that molded you as a human being, you are bound to those things, and you will act freely according to your nature. But there is a deterministic element to the universe. Tomorrow, gravity will not cease to exist. Two plus two will always be four. Cats won't turn into cows. Like, physics will still work, you know? Like, so, reality won't upend tomorrow. So, 
that, that, that's that worldview again coming into play. I will answer that question based on what I believe reality is and how I believe humans attain knowledge and what real knowledge is. So you addressed free will, and free will lives in bounds. You addressed determinism, that determinism also, they exist, they coexist together. Is there a third view on reality that someone should consider? If there is, you'll have to share the audience and we can interact with it. Well, I think that practical wisdom, which I would list as wisdom from 1900 to present, mostly because it's people that I've quoted before, and I think that it's relevant, uh, would be Viktor Frankl and Carl Jung. Both determined that uh, one of the one of the views that someone should hold, and I know that some people have a, tro- a problem with the word "should," but I will I, I I get why that's a problem. I get why people say that the word "should" is not a beneficial word. It's saying that from my position, looking at your life, your choices were incorrect, or your choices that you're leaning toward are not factoring in things that I see, and therefore. I would expect that if you want a better life, you need to do X or Y or Z or whatever. So people don't like an outside source determining their choices. But the thing is, and getting practical wisdom, getting back to this idea of practical wisdom, practical wisdom says that there are, just like you said, bounds of reality that will skyrocket you toward success or skyrocket you toward more suffering. Every choice that we make, maybe not every choice, but lots of choices that we make, will lead us down either a path that leads to suffering or leads to success. And and success is not the opposite of suffering, but I can't think of the word that I want to use here. Reprieve, maybe success or reprieve. Sorry, suffering or reprieve. Suffering or reprieve. Where the opposite of suffering would be reprieve. And 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 I don't say comfort because I think sometimes comfort is suffering. Uh, I won't get into that, but I think that sometimes comfort is suffering. Hedonism is suffering on a different level. And I believe that hedonism is a form of comfort. But practical wisdom from Frankel and Jung would say that you have to do something with your suffering. You have to make a conscious choice to use that suffering that you're enduring, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're in poverty. You have to do something with the suffering that you've been given and dealt with and give it meaning. That's the first thing that I think people need to do in terms of uh, worldview. The second thing is they need a religion. And Jung talks about this, and Frankel alludes to this. But Jung says that it was when he realized that he had lost religion that he had, was no longer human. And Carl Jung is, is noted as being one of the fathers of uh, psychology, next to Freud and, forgetting the other guy's name who came after Jung, but Jung is one of the fathers of psychology. And he determined, he didn't say what religion, he didn't, he didn't espouse that you needed a specific religion, which is interesting because he was the son of a pastor, a Protestant pastor. He just said that you have to have a religion or you're no longer human because something about religion ends up allowing you to have a view on the world. That's not how I want to say it. Having a religion gives you a view on the world that gives you the opportunity to engage with everything that you're handed because it has a way to engage with it because it's a methodology rather than nihilism or hedonism or, sorry, let me pause for a second. Nihilism is to believe that nothing matters, 
hedonism is to believe that the only reason that we exist is pleasure. Absurdism, which I think is actually the most interesting of the isms and philosophies and worldviews outside of Christianity, is that nothing exists for reason and you should just be absurd because it's there, which was Albert Camus, uh, if I remember hmm. correctly. But I uh, <laughs> I actually really like that one. All that to say, I, I've i gone off on my own side tangent here and yeah. we're, we're coming to the close of the episode. So we, we unpacked a lot here. Talk to us. What do you think about worldview? Do you think free will exists? Do you think determinism is the only way to go? Do you think that we should start a... Cult. video chat uh what who wants to start a side quest cult with us who's in whatever we're done here we're done here goodbye good people <laughs>